Welcome to the Writer Experience Podcast, presented by FlickeringMyth.com. I'm your host, Court Dunn. Join us as we talk to writers about their work, their process, and what it means to be a writer. Today's episode is brought to you by Audible. Get a free audiobook download and a 30-day free trial at www.audibletrial.com slash writer experience. Audible has over 180,000 titles to choose from for your iPhone, Android, Kindle, or MP3 player. Welcome to the Writer Experience Podcast. Today's guest is Hannah Khan. Hannah is a critically acclaimed Pakistani-American children's author of Amina's Voice, Power Forward, On Point, Bounce Back, It's Ramadan, Curious George, Golden Domes and Silver Lanterns, and The Night of the Moon. Her newest book, More to the Story, is a little women-inspired novel and takes on the concerns of a Muslim-Pakistani-American family in 2019, just launched in September through Simon & Schuster's Salam Reads imprint. Henna, how are you? Welcome to the show. I'm doing great. Thank you so much for having me. My first question, always to all our guests, is where are you in the world right now? I am in my hometown of Rockville, Maryland, uh, just outside of Washington, D.C., which is where I've grown up and spent all of my life. How does being in Maryland affect you as a writer? I think it was probably a very nice place to grow up. I mean, all I know, but being so close to the capital, I think we had a lot of diversity here. I grew up around people from all over the world, which is nice and remains nice. And I would say that's probably the biggest probably the biggest influence on my writing. We have a big, nice Pakistani-American community here as well. As far as what you're working on now, now I mentioned a lot of books that you've worked on, and I know that more to the story recently launched in September. So what are you working on now? Have you started a new book? Are you just focusing on promoting what's on the horizon? I am writing. I'm actually in the revision stage for a sequel to Amina's Voice. Awesome. Yeah, I'm really excited about it. So I hopefully will get that wrapped up pretty soon. And then I'm excited to begin working with author Adam Gidwit on his Unicorn Rescue Society series. And I'll be working with him on book number six. So we're scheduled to meet soon next week, actually, and start hashing that out and looking forward to getting started. Before we get into process, which I definitely want to dive into, tell us about how you got to this point. You've worked on a lot of books, critically acclaimed. When you set out to be a writer, so to speak, did you always know you wanted to be a writer? You know, How did you get from that point to here? Yeah. So I think I always knew I wanted to be a writer. I was always a writer in some way, <laughs> like as a child, just writing for fun, writing for my high school newspaper, and then working in public health, actually, for a bunch of different organizations doing communications work. So writing was always a part of my life. Uh, the children's writing was sort of accidental. I was introduced by a friend of mine who was working for Scholastic Book Clubs and invited me to help her on one of the series. And I realized that it was something that I loved doing and wanted to keep doing. And I was fortunate enough to be hired to write for several of their series and then to start publishing my own books. And that was really motivated by becoming a mother and reading to my my young son and then seeing how the lack of representation that I had growing up still existed and that perhaps I could try to change that and start filling that gap by telling stories that hadn't been told before. What is the main difference working on a children's book as opposed to working on a book for adult audience? Well, I didn't actually work on books before. So I was doing a lot of dissemination and technical writing. So it was reports and annual reports and things like that. So, you know, apart from a few chapters in books, um, I hadn't written a book for adults, but um, but definitely a very different audience and definitely much more straightforward and 
well, straightforward in some way in terms of presenting data and, you know, research concepts and things like that, but also, you know, trying to fight with social scientists who were very attached to using the passive voice, for example. And then to move from that to children's writing, where you got to be a lot more creative and, and fun. And especially when I first started working for these series, it's like, oh, I can, I can throw in silly puns and I can actually use exclamation points sparingly, but when appropriate and things that you would never do in you know, serious academic writing. So it was a big switch for me, but one that was really fun to make. And then I realized that if everyone just wrote as if they were writing for children, we'd have a lot more <laughs> clear um, reports, you know, even things that I feel like a lot of times in the scientific or, you know, social scientific world, we try to make ourselves sound very important and every right. finding, you know, to feel very significant. And sometimes it's okay to just, you know, get to the point. It was nice to be able to do both for a while and hopefully make my scientific writing a lot cleaner and clearer as a result of writing for kids. So I would love to get into the process side of things, specifically for more to the story and hear about how you wrote it. Are you okay with me reading the synopsis before sure. we get into it? Okay. Yeah. So more to the story. When Jamila Mirza is picked to be feature editor of her middle school newspaper, she's one step closer to being an award-winning journalist like her late grandfather. Problem is, her editor-in-chief keeps shooting down her article ideas Jamila's assigned to write about the new boy in school who has a cool British accent but doesn't share much, and wonders how she'll make his story gripping enough to enter into a national media contest. Jamila, along with her three sisters, is devastated when their father needs to take a job overseas, away from their cozy Georgia home for six months. Missing him makes Jamila determined to write an epic article, one to make her dad extra proud. But when her younger sister gets seriously ill, Jamila's world turns upside down, and as her hunger for fame looks like it might cost her a blossoming friendship, Jamila questions what matters most and whether she's cut out to be a journalist at all. I have a couple quotes, too, from Publishers Weekly. Khan nimbly incorporates details of modern life and allusions to Alcott's classic into a tale that is fittingly strongest in the moments when family dynamics are on display. And booklist in her latest novel, Khan, brings readers a charming take on Louisa May Alcott's 1868 classic, Little Women. Khan's homage to one of her favorite books growing up is engagingly written for a young and new generation. Like Little Women, this is a story that is sure to appeal to many. And my last quote is, Ellen O, author of the Spirit Hunter series, a beautifully warm and deeply heartfelt story of sisters, family, and love that will move the reader from laughter to tears and hopefulness. Inspired by Little Women, Khan's more to the story is a brilliant tribute to the original that both modernizes and enriches the story. Those are some really great quotes. How does it feel to have the book out and to have people writing such amazing things about your work? Oh, it's, it's amazing and it feels really good, especially because I'm sure as a lot of writers feel, I was super nervous to have this one come out only because you, know, you always have nerves, but also because it was take on the classic and inspired by a book that I love so much. And so I was really nervous to see how people might feel or react to it. And so, so far, I've been really you know, heartened by the positive reaction and people just to feel that they, they still connect with the story and, and like the fact that it's inspired by the classic. If they've read it, they feel like it was a appropriate take on it. I, I know people are very possessive sometimes as right. I am of the stories that they love so much. And then, um, you know, if people aren't familiar with the classic, they're just enjoying it for what it is, which is really, really great to hear. Let's start with the inception of an idea. This is inspired by Little Women. Did you read Little Women growing up? And why did you choose that story? Tell us a little bit about how you chose to tell this story. Yeah, so I was obsessed with Little Women when I was growing up. It was my favorite book, and I read it over and over again, to the point where I had read it several times all the way through. I had memorized parts of it, probably. I started 
just picking it up and letting the page fall wherever, you know, open the book fall open on any page. And I would start reading wherever, you know, whatever I started. And it was just a story that I, for some reason, very strongly connected to. I think in looking back now and, and trying to analyze what it was about the story that spoke to me, I think I just loved the family connections, you know, following these girls and their lives from adolescence onward. And then as a child of immigrants and growing up as a Pakistani American Muslim, it sounds strange, but I think I saw myself in this family in some ways that I didn't see in maybe more contemporary works. Things like some of the attitudes towards even gender or the regard that the girls have for their parents and that sort of deep respect <laughs> that I didn't see in some other more modern books. Things like marriage proposals and some of the norms around dating. All that stuff was pretty familiar to me and felt comfortable. I felt very safe and, I don't know, not, not as lonely when I was reading this book growing up. And so I just adored it. And it was actually only after I, I was reading uh, letters that children, high school students had written to their favorite authors for a letters and literature competition that happens across libraries around the country. And I was reading these beautiful letters that students had written to different authors about the books that they connected with and what they loved about them and what type of an impact it had. And I thought about who I would have written to if I was assigned this project. And I thought about Louisa May Alcott and what I would tell her. And somehow from that, it, you know, thinking about the things I just mentioned, I thought, you know, it'd be amazing to write a Pakistani American version of this book that sort of takes, you know, all the things I love about it and applies it to a Pakistani American family like my own. But then when I actually sat down, that was sort of the seed of the idea. I shared it with my editor who was really excited about it. But initially, I did imagine it to be more of a retelling and maybe more YA oriented with the original cast of characters being close to the same ages as they are in the classic book when it begins. But when I sat down to write, and I actually did write the first five chapters of it with the outline I originally created, I realized that I, I wasn't connecting with it the way I'd hoped. And I realized that I was a bit younger when I first read Little Women and fell in love with it. And I decided I wanted to approach it from a different direction and age it down to middle grade. So I ended up scrapping that and starting over <laughs> and it ended up being much less of a retelling and more of a story that is just inspired by this book that I love so much with pieces pulled out from the original and what you have now. More to the story also tackles some hard-hitting subjects, financial hardship, racism, healthcare issues. What do those topics mean to you? And also tell us about the challenges, I imagine, infusing those messages or talking about those things in a book for children. Yeah. So, I mean, I think that was another thing about Little Women that I appreciated was that it did deal with some big life challenges. The girls in the story were, you know, a part of a, what was considered a poor family at the time where they had financial hardship. One of the sisters falls very ill with scarlet fever, and she actually dies from it in the book. So, there, you know, it didn't shy away from these heavy topics, even though I didn't feel like the book was heavy. And that's really what I hope to do, too, is that I, I touched on some of the themes that really stuck with me, like some of the major things and the fact that the, the family had some financial struggle in my book. It's not dire by any means, but that their financial situation is what takes their father overseas away from them as he finds a job over there. And things like the illness of the sister who does fall sick in my book, Bisma, was something I wanted to explore because I think I really love the connection that Joe in, in Little Women has to Beth, the sister who falls ill. And even though Little Women was written 
uh, in the third person and sort of dedicates chapters to each of the sisters. And there's no one real main character. I think most readers would probably identify most with Joe and consider her the main character. And that's why I made my character, Jamila, the center of my story. My story is told from her point of view, but she's still very much, you know, engaged with all of her sisters who have a special role in her life. And she's especially close to this mother's sister who falls ill. And so I did worry a little bit about, you know, introducing such a heavy theme. I did want Bisma to have an illness that was grave, but also treatable and, you know, something that, you know, wouldn't be too scary or serious or deadly necessarily. And so she does develop Hodgkin's lymphoma during the book and undergoes treatment for it. But I think, you know, a lot of middle grade fiction does tackle serious themes. And I think mine actually compared to many (laughs) isn't as heavy or serious as some, even though there are, you know, some challenges that that the family just does go through. I think there's a lot of hopefulness and, you know, support and love there to sort of balance any of the the scarier or more serious sides of the things that they're dealing with. So you come up with the idea for the book, you have your messages, you have your themes that you want to cover. You mentioned briefly outlining. Tell us about your outline process. How important is that to you? What does it look like? So I definitely, for me, outlining is really important. So I think I, I start off by really thinking about, you know, themes I want to pull out, who my characters are going to be, what the major plot lines might be. And then I sit down and actually write out a chapter by chapter outline of what I think will happen in each chapter and try to establish, you know, the flow of the book and how to balance, you know, character building and plot building chapters with, you know, that right balance of serious and light and, you know, a variety of settings and things like that, and really establish the story arc and all the subplots. And each, you know, my chapter's not super extensive. It's probably, you know, for each chapter, maybe two or three sentences, generally talking about what's going to happen, you know, the major characters, or, you know, is this going to be a conversation scene between two people, or is this person going to, you know, get in a fight with someone or be at school and talking to your best friend or whatever it is. So it might just be, you know, two or three sentences. And then I'll write from that outline. And I'm someone who who does stick to it pretty closely. But of course, as, as I start to write and realize things maybe aren't working the way I intended, or I need more here and less there, you know, I'll, I'll trim for sure. But I definitely use the outline as, as a roadmap or else I think I would feel I'd feel a little bit lost and overwhelmed and not know where to start. Tell us about the actual writing process. When you sit down to write novel, what does that look like? Are you working in a Word document with an outline split screen next to you? Like, what does that first day, so yeah. to speak, look like as you kind of set out to tackle that journey? Yeah, I sit with a blank screen <laughs> in a Microsoft Word document, kind of old school. And I have my outline open in another window, but I usually don't look at it. I just like one thing on my screen at a time. And so when I set out to write, I always start from the first chapter, even though a lot of times it will end up changing and I'll add another scene or something. But I like to begin with the first. For more of the story, I knew exactly where I wanted the story to begin, which is on Eid Day, the Eid holiday, with the girls grumbling and complaining, similar to Little Women. That was one of the little tributes to the book, just for people who were familiar with it, to sort of draw that parallel from the very beginning. So yes, I just sat down and started to write. I write like I said, to the outline, but I wish I was super disciplined (laughs) and one of those people who wrote, you know, every day for three hours a day or something like that. I definitely write in fits and spurts and when I can, but 
for me, it can be sort of agonizing, the first draft especially, and, and getting the thoughts out of my head onto the page. It's something that I do find challenging initially. The first drafts are something I, you know, I personally don't love the most. But what I'll do is write until I often rewrite, especially those first few chapters while I'm still trying to get the voice right and really get to know the characters and establish who they are. So each time I pause and you know stop writing for a time, then I'll go back the next time, you know, I open up my document and I'll edit and sort of rewrite until I get it to a point where I feel comfortable. So especially the first, I would say five chapters of a book take me the longest because I'm doing a lot of editing and rewriting as I'm going along. And then once I sort of feel comfortable, then I'll move on. But that's just sort of the way I write. Every time I start, I'll go back to maybe the last chapter, either halfway or even the whole chapter and sort of tweak it and edit it and get back into the feeling of the book and where I left off. And and so it it helps me later on because I don't have as much revision to do. I know some people, some writers who just plow through and are really quick at getting a first draft out. And I think for me, it maybe takes me longer. But then I think when I'm done, I have perhaps like a slightly more polished draft as a result of all that editing. How do you balance the choosing how much dialogue you have versus, you know, descriptions with uh, what characters are thinking, backstory, context, all that? Yeah, I think for me, a lot of times I think about, you know, just what it would be like as a reader to approach this book. And I mean, I know I, you know, I do a lot of critiquing of, you know, members of my writing group and other authors who I exchange work with. And I know that what I pay attention to is things that what I look for is, as you know, for example, as a reader, if there's a lot of action, and it's just perpetual action, chapter after chapter, I start to get tired. I think I think of that, like how to have a scene change, you know, where you maybe have a quiet contemplative moment, but then all of a sudden that be interrupted by by dialogue or by something happening, just to keep it interesting. Because I feel like if we have, you know, too much of one thing, we start to get bored, or at least I know I do. <laughs> I think lately, I've become more comfortable with dialogue. I think as I as a writer, it's something that I think in my earlier novels, I especially with Amina's voice, it was something that I had to go back and work on a bit to get it to sound more natural and to you know, trim it down and to really listen to how people speak. I think it got a lot better from where it was my first draft, but I think my recent books, maybe the dialogue's a bit stronger than it was in that book too. And I feel like now I, since I enjoy writing dialogue so much, I have to resist the temptation to make my dialogue scenes go on too long and and not have just a whole bunch of talking (laughs) and balance and more thoughts and other actions and and things happening around. How do you make Different characters have different voices. Obviously, that can be a challenge sometimes since it's all coming from you. Yeah, it's funny. When I was writing more of the story, for some reason, I decided to make Ali British. And I don't know why I did that, <laughs> what, like where that came from. But for some reason, I just really liked the idea of him being British and moving from, maybe it was because I wanted him to be far away from home and be this sort of lonely, mysterious person who enters the girls' lives. But it was funny, when I wrote my first draft, I just wrote him as you know, as this kid who I imagined. And I had, think I had a few things where I thought he sounded what I thought a British person might sound like as my very American self. And it was funny because afterwards I read certain this does not sound like a British person. And luckily <laughs> I have a good friend whose nephew lives in London and he's a Pakistani American who was in his teens. And, and so I thought this would be great. So he graciously agreed to have Skype sessions with me where I would read him my dialogue and he would correct me. (laughs) Like, well, I think we would say it this way or not that way. And that was really, really helpful. And then just in terms of overall voice, 
you know, just thinking about who someone really is, I think helps, you know, like what is it about them that makes their personality distinct? And in the case of these sisters, you know, I think Jamila being my main character, we're in her head and we're, we know her the best, but she's a very passionate person who's like Joe and Little Women sort of pushing back against what is expected of her. She wants more for herself maybe than, than is offered. Her older sister is someone who's very pretty and into her looks and a bit motherly, the eldest. So she's, you know, just by virtue of what she's doing and what she's into, I feel like it helps shape her dialogue and her persona. And likewise, the other two sisters you know, have their own way. I think one of my favorites to write was Eliza, the youngest sister, who is sort of what Jamila considers the spoiled one who likes to get her way and will you know, interrupt and ask for things or try to work something in her, to her advantage. And so that was kind of fun just to have this character who I actually really like, but, you know, isn't perfect or sweet all the time and to create that conflict between the two of them at times. So I think for me, it's a matter of sort of envisioning this whole person and then trying to bring out little aspects of their personalities through dialogue, through what they're doing and how they're interacting with each other. We have a lot of writers on this podcast. Do you like what writers write? Do you like free stuff? Well, Audible is offering a free audiobook download for listeners of the Writer Experience Podcast with a free 30-day trial to give you the opportunity to check out their service. I recently downloaded James Joyce's Ulysses for my commutes into the city, while our producer Harry, who may or may not exist, has been enjoying J.R.R. Tolkien's The Hobbit. To download your free audiobook today, go to audibletrial.com slash writer experience. Again, that's audibletrial.com slash writer experience for your free audiobook. The Flickering Myth Podcast is a source for all of the weekly entertainment news that we could possibly be bothered to talk about. Tune in every Tuesday for a roundtable discussion featuring a host of Flickering Myth writers and contributors. You can find us on all your favorite podcatchers as well as right here at flickeringmyth.com, part of the Flickering Myth Podcast Network. Hi, I'm Alan Christian. I'm Gerald James. And I'm Lacey Day. And we host the Four Color Film Podcast. What do we do at the Four Color Film Podcast, Gerald? We watch and dissect every comic book-based film. Lacey, do you still like being here? Yeah, it's really great. (laughs) (laughs) You can find us on Stitcher, iTunes, Google Play, and Spotify, and wherever else they have good podcasts and podcasts like these <laughs> you sound like a kidnapping victim <laughs> also on the flickering myth podcast network at flickeringmyth.com along with other great shows check us out and check them out too thank you hell zane hell zane hell zane And as you're writing the novel, do you encounter writer's block? We hear all different ranges of people who believe anywhere from writer's block doesn't exist to those who really struggle with it. What's your experience? What are your ways to combat it? Yeah, I think for me, writer's block really manifests as doubt, you know, like the fear that my story isn't working or that, you know, it's just going to be a gigantic flop. You know, I have this little voice in the back of my head, like I think many people do telling me, you know, to give up. And I think sometimes in these moments of doubt or just, you know, frustration or thinking like, 
don't think this is working. I don't think anyone's going to like this. Then I don't want to do it. And, you know, I have to really push myself to try to continue. The way I deal with it really is to just take breaks and sometimes just going for a walk or washing dishes or something else will sort of clear my head. I really don't try to force myself to write when I know I'm not in the mood or just feeling out of sorts or just not ready for it. So I don't spend every day writing. I do a lot of traveling and school visits and other things that take up my time. So I end up craving writing, <laughs> like that moment to sit down because it's not something that's on my calendar every single day. And I think that helps me too. But for me, definitely, you know, taking a break and doing something else and sometimes just thinking about my characters or my scenes when I'm stuck encourage me to keep going. So like it'll sort of work itself out in my mind while I'm not sitting in front of the screen. But I think the worst thing for me is to sit in front of my computer when I'm just frustrated and the words just aren't coming out and <laughs> just like staring at it and stressing out doesn't help me at all. And I don't end up usually producing anything worth keeping when I'm in that state of mind. So you're revising the book. Is there a particular page count? Is there a particular moment where you know the manuscript is ready to be sent out? Yeah. So for this book, I did have a word count in mind. I was trying to aim for around 45,000 words. And that was based on just, it sounds ridiculous, but just like the heft of Ominous Voice. Ominous Voice is a shorter novel. And I know some people really appreciate that and feel like it's a quick read or, you know, for a kid who maybe is intimidated by a thicker book. I wanted it to be a little bit more substantial than that book was. So I knew I needed, you know, a few more, several thousand more words. But in terms of feeling like it was finished, I mean, it was really when I felt like the characters felt like real to me. I don't know if that makes sense. Like there was enough of them. There was enough of an emotional journey. There was enough of a enough of a variety of feelings that the story took you through. So I really wanted there to be enough moments of, you know, humor and maybe a couple of very heart pulling, you know, uh, sad moments or oh, sad's not the right word, but just like emotional connection. And then just sort of this, the growth of the characters and do they feel different by the end of the book? And when I felt like there was that and the language, you know, I worked on it enough where I felt like everything was sort of where it needed to be in terms of variety of language and the quality of the language, et cetera. Then I finally, you know, was like, okay, I think this is it. Deadlines, of course, help <laughs> make that happen too. But yeah, just a, a feeling that, okay, I think this is good. And I also have beta readers who are really helpful. And so I always do have several people read my drafts for me. You mentioned deadlines. At this point in your career, do you already have an editor involved from the very beginning? Or are you you know, still going through an agent and pitching? And at what point did you have an editor for this book? Yeah, so I have both for depending on what type of project I'm doing. So I still write picture books. So I work with different editors for my picture books and we'll still you know, sell those differently. I'm just um, actually in the process of starting a new series with a new editor. So that was a, a proposal that I, I pitched with a co-author. So we're excited about that. But for more of the story, I was working with the same editor who I worked with on Ominous Voice and the Zaid Selim Chasing the Dream series power forward on point and bounce back. So I think we know each other well now as writer and editor. And so it's great that Serene Joffrey at Simon & Schuster, who's the editor for these books. And I think we have a really good working relationship. And for this book, I felt like, I think because I was extra nervous about it for the reason I mentioned that 
it's like, okay, everybody loves little, or the people who do love little women love little women. And I, I was just worried, <laughs> you know, how might people feel about this book? And, and also I reached a point where I was maybe more than 75% done, but I just wasn't sure how to tie the book together and how to wrap it up. And so I felt like I needed a little bit of guidance. And, you know, so whenever I need, I need Zareen to jump in and, and help me. She's, she's great. So that helps a lot. But for the, for this book and with my relationship with her now, we can talk about an idea for a book and I can, you know, give her an outline and then go from there. So I don't have to write the whole thing first or pitch it like I used to. For those writers listening right now, when they get to a point where they're working with an editor, are there things that they can do and should not do that would behoove them to make that process smooth? Yeah, well, I think, I mean, being mindful of deadlines, I think is, you know, an important thing to try to do, because I know editors more and more have you know, so much on their plates. And so I know that they really appreciate that. And so I usually try as hard as possible to get things when I say I will deliver them. And then just, I know people have such different working relationship with their editors. I don't actually talk to mine on a regular basis while I'm drafting, you know, but I know she's there if I need to ask questions. But I also think it helps to have other people reading your work and to give, you know, as final of a product as you feel, you know, something that you feel really good about. I know some people just in the hopes of getting something done, will just sort of turn something in that sort of they know isn't their best work. And I think that sometimes that can lead to frustration when you maybe have to go through multiple rounds of revision. And so I think if you can avoid that by, you know, getting something that's seen, you know, and, and it might still happen, you might not see eye to eye and something might not be working about your story. It might end up happening. But I think, I mean, it sounds basic and it sounds sort of teachery to be like, give your best work. <laughs> but I think, you know, those things do make a difference. And I think people can feel or sense like the level of effort and the quality that you, you know, wanted your book to have. And when you get to a point where you're feeling like that book is ready for copy editing, what is that process like? How involved are you? And is that scary to let it go into someone else's hands? To, you know? <laughs> it is. But I actually love copy editors, and I think they do such a great job. And it's amazing to see the things that they pick up on that I, you know, am so grateful for. Things like even continuity mistakes, or you know, well, you said two weeks here, but this is actually three weeks later. And you know, just even the word choice, like googling words, and be like, are you sure, you know, that you want this spelling or you know, that type of thing. So I feel like the copy editors who worked on my novels have just done an amazing job making them stronger and even pointing out things that I think just help the book be better altogether. But for me, it's always super exciting. I think more than the initial journey to copy editing, when I feel nervous is when I get the first pass, or, you know, the, the printed, I usually get passed for them in hardcover. So they mail me a copy of those, you know, laid out pages. And to me, that is always the moment where I'm like, ah, you know, and is this the best it can be? And and, you know, I don't want to make major changes, obviously, at that point, because I know that nobody wants that. But I know with more to the story, I did make more changes than I had in the past at that stage, just because I, I found things that I wasn't comfortable with. And I mean, not huge, huge changes, but maybe like a whole paragraph here and there that I would either insert or modify, which I usually didn't do. So, yeah, I think copy editor is the best. It's <laughs> my favorite part. As far as the title something we don't always talk about, but it's fun to talk about. At what point did you know the title that you ended up coming up with? Yeah, this time it was, you know, it was funny because I was completely spoiled by my first experience with Amina's voice. And I had saved my first draft for that book as Amina's voice because I knew she oh, was wow. 
a singer and that she was going to grow as a person. Like that just popped in my head. And I kept thinking, okay, well, at some point we're going to have a conversation about this title, I'm sure. (laughs) Because I've heard from other authors about how tiring it can be or how difficult it can be to, to come up with something that everyone likes. And all of a sudden I saw, you know, a comp for the, for the cover and it said ominous voice. And I said, well, I guess that's the title. And that was great because I liked it and everyone liked it. And that was that. And so for this book and for the Zayd Salim series, it was also not, we went back and forth a little bit, but it was pretty easy to come up with the title. And then the series title was the one I think that we spent a little more time on. And then the individual titles for the books was not an issue at all. And so for this one, I had just, I couldn't think of something right off the bat. And so I had just titled my draft Jamila. And I knew that wasn't going to be the story, the, the name of the book, but my editor made a suggestion, which I liked and didn't love. And then I made some suggestions that she liked and didn't love. And we went back and forth a bit. I don't think anybody was truly happy with the title. And what I had tried to do was go through my draft and find a phrase or a moment that would inspire something. My agent did the same thing, my editor too. And then I actually went back to Little Women and tried to find maybe a line that would inspire something that would work. So we had a few different options. And then it was funny because we had settled on something different. And then I met an editor, a different editor from Simon & Schuster, and we were talking about it at, a, at an event at a conference. And then she ended up suggesting something. And that made me start thinking about it again. And I went back and was like, you know, how about these again? And I reopened the whole, <laughs> the whole conversation. And then when they were discussing them, this editor came up with more of the story. Actually, it was her idea. And I think we all just liked it. I like titles that do have maybe more than one layer of meaning. And that's what I appreciated about this one. What about the cover? How much control do you have in the cover? Does the publisher come up with who's creating the cover? And what's that look like? So the title, I actually have more, I think, contractually. I think I have to agree on the title from what I understand. For the cover, I mean, they definitely want my input, which is nice. But I think if I didn't like it 100%, like they could still move without me. It's a team-wide decision. So everybody's involved in the cover. So sales and marketing and publicity and obviously the design team and editorial, everybody weighs in on it. So I'm just one voice among many when it comes to the cover. For this one, we have the same artist as the Amina's voice. And the first draft I saw was pretty similar. The girls maybe looked a little bit, they actually looked a bit younger. I saw a drawing, a final version, but I love the concept of them, you know, looking up and the modifications I suggested were small, like things like, like I said, aging them up a little bit and then making each of them look a little more distinct so that readers could identify who was who based on the story. So I asked for Mariam to maybe have a little bit of makeup on, and she's the one looking at her phone on the cover, and thought it was nice that Jamila, the main character, is the only one who's making eye contact with you. So like little subtle things like that. So I I love it. I, I love the cover and how it turned out, and I'm really happy with it. Then the book comes out. What's going through your mind? As uh, the book's out, are there certain goals you're trying to hit? Are there personal goals? Is there a lot of pressure? What emotions are kind of running through your mind? I think for this book, it was multiple things. I think it was a novel, you know, they put, you know, author of Amla's Voice on the cover, which I was like, wow, like that means that people who maybe know me as that an author of another book could be, you know, directed towards this one. And that was just cool to see. But it also for me sort of raised the stakes a little bit that maybe there was a expectation on the part of the readers. Uh, so that, I think, heightened my nerves. And then that coupled with the Little Women, you know, connection and how people might react to that, which was really, a, you know, another motivation for me not to do more of the retelling, apart from 
my just not connecting with the character as I was writing it. You know, I one didn't really want to retell someone else's story exactly as it was or very close to what it was. Like that just, just didn't seem fun to me. But also I thought about how much I loved the classic book and how I even, you know, reacted to movie versions and was never satisfied with them. I thought, you know, why did they do this or why they put this in or leave that out? And I would hate for someone to feel that same way about my book. But I was still a little bit nervous since it was, you know, inspired by and I knew fans of Little Women might be reading it for that reason. I was holding my breath for a bit (laughs) until I got some reviews. It made me really happy that people who read it, some didn't realize that it was inspired by Little Women. And I put my my author's note at the end where I mentioned that and the significance of that book in my life and some other things about even Bisma's illness and the family that helped me greatly during the writing of the book. That whole part of Bisma and her husband's lymphoma was, it would have been impossible if it wasn't for my friends and neighbors whose family was dealing with this and their daughter went through a very similar struggle. So, you know, there was all of that <laughs> woven in. So, yeah, so it was really comforting to see. Also, I had put that mention at the end of the book too, because I didn't want it to be a spoiler, you know, for people if I put it right up at the beginning of the book. But just having people say that they, people said things like, well, I was, you know, reading it and I noticed there was something familiar, but I couldn't put my finger on it. And and other people knew right away. And some people had heard about the connection, but we deliberately didn't put it on the flap copy. So what you read, you know, doesn't mention Little Women. And so the book itself doesn't say that, but a lot of the marketing material, and I think the little blurb online does mention it, but the actual book doesn't. So not everybody was aware of that while they were reading. But in terms of personal goals, I mean, for me, more than anything, just having people like the book, having kids and adults, you know, tell me in various ways, whether it's in person at events or, you know, reviews. And I do read Goodreads and Amazon reviews. I know some authors stay away from it and, you know, will not look, but... I do look. And for the most part, I'm really pleased because, you know, the vast majority of reviews are, I feel fair and, you know, I appreciate them. Yeah. So it's been great. It's only been a couple of months, but so far the reaction has been great. You know, I try not to pay too much attention to numbers and, you know, sales figures and stuff. And it's actually really hard to come by too, which is probably a blessing in a way, because we only, as authors, at least I don't see a lot of numbers and I know everything's accounted for very differently in libraries and versus commercial and all that stuff. So it's just stuff I just don't see very much or very easily. So I try to just enjoy it and focus on the next thing I'm working on. Which brings me to my next question. How do you find a healthy balance between seeing through promoting your current book and coming up with the next idea? I know you had mentioned you already have ideas for the next book. When do you right. start? Yeah. So for me, I mean, a healthy balance overall is something I still struggle with finding just in terms of, you know, just the right amount of even travel. Like I, I think I sometimes tend to overschedule myself and then realize it later on. But in terms of timing, it worked out well where I was able to work once this book was in publication. So, you know, I was done with the copy edits and everything else and then had the summer to work on my draft or even before the summer, like the late spring and, and summer to work on my new book, the, the sequel to Ominous Voice that I mentioned. And then by the time the book came out, I was mostly done. And in revision stage, which is where I've been the last couple months. So as I'm promoting and touring and sharing this, I can not have the intense pressure of trying to finish or draft an entire first draft and meet that deadline. So that's been a blessing. But yeah, just the overall balance in terms of, you know, new ideas and promoting current work and finding the time to write and do all the things I want to do and, you know, social media and my website and all this stuff. It's something I haven't quite figured out yet. 
So uh, it's definitely a, a learning process. And each year I think I have a better handle on it. And I'm like, nope, actually I don't. But I'm learning for sure. And hopefully in a few years I'll have a better handle on how to balance things just right. If it's possible, it might not be. What about your five or 10 year plan? What's the end goal? Would you ever consider going into other genres, whether that's TV writing or graphic novel writing? Yeah, yeah. I actually am excited about different genres. And the series that I'm going to be starting with, the, I mentioned an author friend, is not yet announced, actually, but we're just finalizing the contracts. I think it's probably going to be announced soon, but it's actually a choose your own, like choose your path type of book, which I've done before. I've written a few of them in the past. And so it's a format I really enjoy and I know kids really enjoy. So I'm excited to work on that. And then graphic novels are something that kids have asked me a lot about. And I actually had the chance to work on or to participate in a workshop that was hosted by DC Comics several years ago. So it was the pilot. It was this talent development workshop that they were piloting. And I was one of the participants in that first course. And it was taught by Scott Snyder, who's the writer for Batman, if you're a DC Comics person. But it was really cool. And for me, I, you know, I have no experience in comic writing. And I thought that was the way it was going to be and that everybody in the workshop was going to be complete newbie like me. But it ended up that I was actually the only one out of 11 people and everyone else was a comic writer, but not a superhero comic writer or a graphic novelist. And for me, even though I sort of felt like the class dunce, it was this amazing experience to get to learn the craft of comic writing and specifically superhero writing. And I love it. And even though I don't know if I'm cut out for superhero comic writing per se, like for like DC or something like that, it was funny because I, coming from a middle grade perspective, I'd have my characters in my we had to produce an original comic during the class and my characters like to talk about their feelings <laughs> and, uh, and you know it, it was a lot of interpersonal stuff and they were like this is great but you know could you have like more fighting and i'm like okay and i'd like add more fighting they're like more more explosions i'm like okay it was really funny but that made me think about graphic novels like some of the ones we're seeing that are you know middle grade graphic novels that i i love and i know kids love so I would like to try it because I think it's it's fun to push yourself as a writer and try different things and, you know, explore different sides of the craft and improve in different ways. But in terms of a plan, I think and as long as people will still publish me and want to hear the stories I have to tell, I'm going to try to keep doing it. I do like having the balance now of picture books and novels and, you know, the children will be a nice mix in there and other stuff to hopefully keep readers entertained one way or the other. Are you ready for something we call a series of seemingly random questions? Sure. First question, what are the pros and cons to working with a big publisher as opposed to self-publishing? For those who are thinking about whether they should or should not, would you recommend to self-publish or would you say that the situation you have, they should definitely go that route? Hmm. Well, I can't speak to self-publishing since I haven't done it, but I have worked with smaller publishers and larger publishers. And I started with, I actually started with Scholastic Book Clubs, but it was as a writer for hire and writing for series. So that was completely different. But in trade publishing, I started with Chronicle Books and they did Night of the Moon and Golden Jumps and Silver Lanterns. And they actually published the first two choose your own type stories I wrote. And then they published more of my work since, but that was all before starting to work with Simon and & Schuster. And I mean, it was a lovely experience. It was all I knew in terms of trade publishing. But when it came to things like marketing and you know publicity, it was just a different beast because they're a smaller company and they don't have the budget to send all their authors on or you know as many of their authors on tour or you know to conferences and things like that. 
But I think since I was very much writing for a school and library audience, books sort of sold themselves, I like to think, or, you know, Chronicle does a great job with outreach into those communities, but they were able to keep them, you know, in print for all these years, even though Night of the Moon came out 11 years ago and it's still selling, which is amazing to see. So sometimes the smaller publishers can, you know, really do a great job. And since they have fewer books on their list, they really work hard to make sure they aren't forgotten and to keep them in print, which is nice to see. And then with the bigger publishers, the big five, I guess, you have the advantage of bigger budgets and more staff and, you know, whole team behind you. But there is, you know, I guess compared to self-publishing versus that, you know, you're sharing obviously the profits with the publisher altogether. And if you are someone like me who really hates the self-promotion, I do it because it's part of the job and all of us are expected to do it to a certain extent. But I, I really hate the the financial aspect of it. You know, I used to long ago, you know, bring books to events and sell if people asked me to. And I just, I hated even the transaction and like, just sort of like, if I could just give the books away, I would. So I just don't like that aspect of it. And I don't think it's my natural skill, but I know some people are really good at it. And I think if you're like super social media savvy and you're very connected and you have a big network, you know, self-publishing might be the way for you because you don't have to go through all these steps and you don't have to find an agent and you don't have to share your profits. And you know, look for an agent if necessary for the bigger companies. So yeah, I definitely think there's so many possibilities now. It's exciting to see all the different avenues or even some of the hybrids that are, you know, maybe not fully self-published, but sort of less support. You know, I, I see some different options like that. And I think the key is to know yourself and what type of editorial and marketing support you might need. And I definitely think some editorial support, whether it's, you know, even freelance or just hiring someone to copy edit, you know, is probably a good idea before self-publishing. The next question is, if you could take any writer, living or dead, to any fast food restaurant, which writer, which restaurant, and why? <laughs> I would probably take David Sedaris to like a, I don't know, like a diner. <laughs> like, <laughs> like, a, like a really, like a creepy diner in like some small town because I think he's so hilarious and everything he writes is so entertaining. I just can't even imagine what it would be like to have a conversation with him and if it was just some sort of hole in the wall like scary place it would be <laughs> so fun <laughs> imagine like the experience of a lifetime so i know he's not a children's writer and i'm a children's writer but he's just the first person who popped in my mind next question if you could be any one of your characters which would you choose and why hmm who would i be i think i don't know i think maybe i would be jamila just because I always wanted to be Joe so badly in Little Women. And I love the family that I created in, in Mortal Story, the Mirza families. Also just this big loving family. So I think if I was going to pick one, I'd probably like to be her. Yeah, she has a lot of passion and energy for life that I admire. If you could choose one learning or insight from your career to pass along to those writers who are listening right now, what would you say? I would say don't let yourself doubt cripple you. I know... A friend of mine gave me this paperweight years ago, and it said something like, what would you achieve if you knew you couldn't fail? Or something, I'm paraphrasing it, it doesn't say it was much more poetic than that. But basically, like, if you, you know, weren't afraid of failure, what might you achieve? And I think for me, for a long time, I doubted whether or not I, you know, I was grateful for the books I've published, but each time I published a book, especially one that was considered maybe more niche, I thought, okay, that was that was great. You know, like that was fun. And I always held on to my other career and was afraid to even call myself an author. I would just tell people I worked in public health and that I wrote children's books. And 
you know, I wonder had I really believed in myself earlier or wasn't afraid of failing what I might have been able to achieve sooner. And I feel like a lot of people are just afraid to try and afraid of putting themselves out there and getting rejection, which, you know, we all know is part of it. And every writer hears about all the rejections that other authors have gotten. But I do think it's hard to just believe in yourself and silence that, you know, voice telling you that you're going to fail, but you're not going to know until you try. So you just have to push through and just do it. And especially if it's something you're passionate about and you've always wanted to do, which I, I meet so many people who tell me that, but then they don't actually do it. And I think just starting a writing group and just committing to a schedule and just meeting once a month and having something to share can be like a really great first step. Love it. The last question, I'm opening the envelope. And the last question is, did you have fun today on the podcast? Oh, yes. <laughs> this was great. Thank you awesome. for letting me talk about all the things I love to talk about. And, yeah, that's uh, what we love to, to talk about too. Thank you. It's a treat. Did you want to plug before you go anything or shout out anything? I know more to the stories out now, hennacon.com, your Twitter, yeah. anything else? Yeah, you can follow me on Twitter and Instagram at hennacon.book. I'm on Facebook too, but I don't check it very often, but you're welcome to follow me there, uh-huh. connect with me there. Yeah, I hope you'll check out more of the story and, and my other books. I'm excited about all the feedback. I'd love to hear from people. I'd love for you to leave reviews for all of my books. If you were so inclined, I do read them and appreciate them. So thank you for everyone who does that. Thank you to you and everyone who's reading my book and supporting my work. I'm very, very grateful. If you're listening, please check out more to the story. And thank you, Hannah. We really, really appreciate your insights and your time. And we just had a lot of fun. Oh, thank you. Me too. It was a pleasure. For us as well. And thanks to our listeners. We hope to see you next week. Thank you so much for listening to The Writer Experience. If you enjoyed the episode today, please leave a rating, a review, and a comment on iTunes. You can also check us out on Instagram at Writer Experience and Twitter and Facebook at Writer EXP. The Writer Experience is a Samurai Dinosaur production. Copyright 2019. All rights reserved. Music by Kevin McLeod.